Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors, and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. James Shaw is the co-leader of the New Zealand Greens and the Minister for Climate Change. I probably don't need to give him a long introduction, but he's defied the odds to get climate change on the government agenda. With last year's overhaul of the emissions trading scheme, the cross-party support for the Zero Carbon Act, and the creation of the Climate Change Commission, whose draft report has just been published. All wins for sure, but wins that feel probably about a decade too old and still too early to change New Zealand's love affair with utes, motorways and dairy herds. So is he satisfied with the progress to date? Is he pleased with the Commission's report? What will he bring to the table at COP26 in Glasgow this year? And most importantly, has he overcome his mother's threat to throw him out of the house if he ever got into politics? <laughs> so, James, uh, on a day of tsunamis, amongst other things, welcome to this climate business. Yeah, hello. Uh, well, to those very important questions, um, is your mum still talking to you? She, yes, she is. I, you know, I actually did ask her uh, when I was considering running for parliament in the 2000s. I, I was still living in London. Um and uh, kind of came to this idea that I wanted to run for parliament um, as a result of doing my master's degree over there and uh, got in touch and said, look, um, I have this memory of when I was a teenager and you said if I ever got into politics, then um, I'd disown you. And I said, and, and I said but I'd, I actually really would quite like to give it a crack, <laughs> but I'd like to know first, uh, are you still intending on disowning me? And she got in back. She said, no, they'd be very proud. So, uh, uh, are they, they, yeah. they, there you go. And and are they still proud? Yeah, <laughs> probably depends on uh, how much I've messed up on any given day. But um, no, they do they do uh, take the time to say uh, that they are, which is nice knowing that I've got um, the support of my family. It sure is. I mean, it is a brutal affair. And uh, let's just talk about the last election and where you've landed with the Greens. You've, you were kind of in the tent and out the tent. I, I suppose <laughs> you could, could say they've got you exactly where they want you. Well, yeah, look, it's a funny thing, politics. So much of it is, you know, given how hard we work in every given election um, to be given an, another crack at it, uh, it is largely beyond our control. And, and so, you know, we had a shocking election campaign in 2017 and then ended up in government for the first time ever. Uh, and then we had a stonking uh, campaign in 2020, our most successful election campaign in a decade, uh, expanded our caucus for the first time since 2011, you know, won our first electorate seat in 21 years, all of that kind of stuff, and yet almost ended up in a position of not being in the government. Um, but I think with a view to 2023, uh, Jacinda said, well, actually, you know, we, we kind of want to continue to utilise the Greens' strengths uh, and experience. And, and so she's brought us in, um, Marama and me, to do the, the jobs that we are doing. Um, but it is a very, very different governmental arrangement to the one that we were in last time. 
And do you find yourself in a this weird position of, uh, on the one hand, you're responsible uh, because you're in cabinet, or uh, I think you're in cabinet, or are you sort of uh, just out? No, I'm not. I'm one foot yeah. in cabinet. Yeah. So we, it's a, it's a funny distinction because, um, of course, we weren't in cabinet last term either. Uh, you know, New Zealand first were, so they were in a full coalition. We were in a confidence and supply arrangement, and, and actually, to some extent, very little has changed in for for the Greens in terms of that arrangement. Um, but we go into cabinet meetings when we've got cabinet papers that we're needing to represent, or where other ministers are, are bringing papers that you know, I, I as climate change minister might want to weigh in on. So, um, yeah, so it, it, you know, it, it's, it's a kind of, the distinction would be lost to most people, I think. <laughs> well, let me put you in the hot seat and ask you as a sort of quasi-opposition member, how do you rate the government's performance on climate change? Oh, well, I, I think on this one, because I am the government when it comes to climate change, uh, you know, I have to defend the record to some extent. Um, but I, I have to be very honest about the fact that New Zealand, after 30 years of debate, is really only just getting going. And so if I was to compare New Zealand's progress to uh, the UK um, or to some of the other OECD countries, um, we are not as far as advanced. Um, and uh, we've got a lot of catch up to do in a very short period of time. The moves that you have made, though, uh, at least look like you are getting policies and commitments made. Um, so, so shall we talk about some of those things? But in particular, shall we focus on the the Climate Change Commission's report. Um, how happy are you with that report? And do, do you, are you able as Minister to comment on what you've seen so far? Well, I can, I can comment to, up to a point. I, I mean, one thing I have to respect is that we set up the Commission uh, to be politically neutral, independent expert advice. Um, and so uh, it would be remiss of me to go around undermining it um, at this point, having put so much effort into setting it up to, to provide exactly that, um, you know, that that sort of uh, service to the government. Um, I, I, I actually thought they've done an extremely good job. There are certainly areas where, uh, you know, I, I might have thought they might have gone further. There will also be equally um, plenty of other people out there who think that they go way too far or that they haven't done sufficient homework or, or whatever have you. Um, but my sense is that uh, they have developed a proposal for a pathway that keeps us within that one and a half degree uh, threshold for global warming that is the kind of legal requirement that we stay within under the Zero Carbon Act. And they've done their homework in terms of working out, well, what do we think the New Zealand economy can do with current technology? Uh, and that, I think, was quite an important point. They sort of said, well, actually, what, what we, we, you know, we don't want to go with kind of things that haven't been invented yet or, or maybe are showing promising signs but aren't yet commercially realisable. Uh, and the most hopeful thing that I took from their report was they said that the transition would be far cheaper and far faster and easier than uh, the most optimistic modelling had previously suggested and that it can all be done with technology that exists and is available in market today. Uh, and so they said that we can hit our targets or hit the targets that they're proposing over the next 15 years 
only with current technology and that anything new that gets invented over the next 15 years, and of course there will be plenty of stuff that does get invented over the next 15 years, will simply make that uh, even faster and even cheaper. So that's, um, I, I think, a very hopeful message. In your terms of reference, did you ask them to stay within parameters of known technology and uh, a sort of c- current, I don't know, behaviour patterns and strategies? No. Because that, that no. does seem like a very modest and, frankly, unambitious framework to operate in. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose they're taking uh, what might be described as a, a minimum viable proposition type approach, which is to say um, that if you had to, I, I, I actually, you know, it's funny when you say it's a, it's a, it's a unambitious way of looking at it. I, I actually read it in a, a different light. You know, I, I, my sense of what they're saying is that actually there shouldn't be anything holding us back from getting started because we've got everything that we need already. So let's get cracking. Uh, and that, um, you know, subsequent emissions budgets are likely to be much more ambitious because new technology will have been invented and be at the commercializable stage by the time we get around to publishing those next set of uh, next set of budgets. But to, to me, it was, it was actually saying kind of, Come on, let's get going. You don't don't mess around waiting for some magical silver bullet that is yet to be invented. Mm-hmm. There are some things that are current but are not included in the report, and I just think, for example, um, there's almost nothing in around agriculture that talks mm. about new types of agricultural practices that are not reliant on technology. And I'm thinking in particular nature-based solutions or regenerative approaches. Uh, the emphasis seemed to be uh, just a kind of saying, or just a little less smaller herd sizes, uh, a little less uh, rocket fuel on uh, the McKenzie Basin, please. Uh, there must be other things, for instance, uh, in transport policy, for instance, you know, where huge amounts of money are going and in, still into roading and into concrete uh, infrastructure instead of multimodal or modal shifts, um, which, you know, are not new technologies. They're just a shift in decision making and strategy. Uh, do you, how do you respond to that criticism? That uh, you know, I'm not the only one that has said that. That that's been no. fairly well directed back to the commission. Yeah, I, I, and I know that I, I would imagine that they will have received a number of submissions on their draft advice along those lines. Um, I'll pick them off separately uh, because they are quite different from each other. I think on agriculture, the commission is mindful of the fact that in 2022, next year, they've been given the job of auditing progress against the partnerships of uh, the sorry the goals of the um, Hewaka Ekenoa partnership between the Crown and and the uh, various uh, agricultural sector organisations that is supposed to come up with a farm level measurement, management and pricing system for agricultural emissions that sits in parallel to the emissions trading scheme. Mm -hmm. And, And I suspect they're kind of holding their powder dry for that exercise, not wanting to get ahead of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that kind of does have its own own life, I, and that's a debatable point. I mean, I, you know, I think that there will be plenty of people who say, "Well, just because there's a work program doesn't mean you shouldn't try and progress things, right?" And and 
there are work programs in every other sector of the economy as well. So, you know, and we're going to try and make progress on those. So I think, you know, I, I understand that there will be plenty of submissions along those lines. Uh, when it comes to transport, um, you know, that that is probably the area where we need to make the most radical change in the shortest period of time. Uh, and some of the numbers that I've seen some of some of which are hinted at in the commission's report, um, but but are you know contained in other research, you know show that uh, we need um, to pull kind of every single lever. So yes, we need more public transport, and you've got some pretty big money going into some of those projects. But also you need fewer trips, shorter trips, changes in the nature of those trips, uh, and um, and most significantly in Auckland, but also everywhere else in the country as as well. And then everything mm. else, you need to switch the energy from fossil fuels to uh, either electricity or hydrogen. And all of that really kind of has to happen in the, in the kind of coming 10, 10 to 15 years. Mm. And, and I think that the, the government is going to have quite a challenge in uh, being able to respond in the kind of with the speed that it needs to because transport policy is notoriously long run. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it takes a heck of a long time to kind of get a decision about anything and then for those decisions to actually take effect in reality with actual construction and so on. So um, in many ways, this year, I think, is the pivotal year because those decisions actually have to get made and uh, as part of the emissions reduction plan that the government's required to uh, published by the end of this year in response to the Commission's advice. Um, and if we don't do it here, our next chance to do it is the is the next emissions budget um, period 2024. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, <laughs> we're way too late by then for, for a number of these decisions. Well, I, I think also there are some projects that are still on the agenda, Mill Road in, in Auckland, for instance, which, uh, you know, those big infra roading projects are presumably it because we don't have an endless pot of gold sucking money out, out of the system that could be spent on better cycle infrastructure, better walking infrastructure, uh, electrification of buses and, and so on. So do yes. you find yourself as, as climate minister, uh, you know, having to, I don't know, I'd be interested to know how you handle the dynamic of seeing this commitment to uh carbon intensive infrastructure being spent on the one hand and and knowing <laughs> down the line the consequences of that yeah i mean part of my job and and you know there are a number of ministers who who have a kind of a similar brief uh, is to advocate uh, within the government and to my colleagues uh, for uh, you know uh, you know different ways of making decisions yeah. um and ultimately you know when cabinet gets together it is a collective decision uh, that it makes, um, and and they'll either kind of fall on one side of the ledger or the other, or you know, there'll be a kind of a compromise uh, position that gets thrashed out. I guess my approach to all of this has been, I mean, I, I do kind of get involved in uh, individual projects every now and then if I think they're, you know, particularly material and Mill Road's one of them. Uh, but I, what I'm trying to do is to create institutions and frameworks for decision making that are kind of embedded into or hardwired into the into the way that government makes decisions uh, and that if I can do that then it, you know it'll take time but ultimately it will fundamentally shift the way we think about 
uh, all of our investment decisions. And and it is, I have to say, it's kind of easy to get distracted on, on a daily basis with kind of various projects that I think are, oh, you know, that isn't ideal. Maybe if we were to do that differently. But uh, if I just did that and I didn't focus on trying to create this sort of long-term institutional frameworks, uh, then I, I don't think that we would have a, I was going to say a sustainable uh, approach um, in any sense of that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example of a policy framework that was attempted and failed was your fee-bait scheme around uh, importing of uh, low emissions vehicles, uh, really incentivizing uh, importers to um, import low emissions vehicles uh, and disincentivizing, you know, the continued love affair with utes. Um, is that back on the table? It actually was a good scheme, James, and it got wide support from the industry and mm. and even across government. I think, I, I can't remember, but I think even the Nats might have supported it. Well, they, they kind of did and didn't support it. Uh, and um, I think, t- so we had this really uh, absurd situation where the day that, so Julian Genta was the Associate Minister of Transport who did all the policy work on that in 2018 and 19. And, and when we um, kind of said that we were going to start consulting on it, um, one day the uh, National Party spokesperson on climate change came out and supported it, but the leader came out against it um, uh, overnight and clearly they hadn't spoken to each other. And so that was that was the end of their support. Mm. Um, and because they weren't supporting it, New Zealand first said, oh, well, we won't support it either. And then really that's what killed it off. Um, so, you know, because we, there was a, you know, you couldn't get a parliamentary majority to put it to put it through. Uh, and that's really unfortunate because, of course, everyone is expecting either the fee-bate scheme uh, or another form of incentive uh, to come along. And in the meantime, that's suppressing demand for electric vehicles because everyone's yes. waiting until there's <laughs> something coming up, uh, which is really unfortunate. Now, Michael Wood is the new Minister of Transport, of course, and he's very aware of this. So I, I do know that he is kind of working his way through uh, that kind of policy conundrum uh, at the moment. But I, I couldn't say where it's at or when it's likely to come out. Uh, Let's talk about uh, what's coming up. So uh, the the two big things, at least on your, I think about on your agenda, are the uh, s- submissions closing on the Climate Commission's report, uh, and then they report back to Parliament uh, with their what their their draft, their final draft. How does that work? Mm. And when does it happen? So they are supposed to give me their final report by the 31st of May. Um, And given that they've just extended the consultation period by uh, a couple of weeks, I think that it's unlikely to get it to me any any sooner than that. And then I am required to table it in Parliament within two weeks Mm -hmm. of that uh, that point. Now, um, the whole structure of the Zero Carbon Act is it sets up a kind of a challenge response type mode, right? So the the Climate Change Commission's advice constitutes a challenge to the government. They say, well, here is what we think uh, your emissions budgets should be over the course of the next 15 years. If you want to stay within that one and a half degree threshold, which is written into the law, um, and here are some of the policy areas that we think that you need to uh, 
uh, get into post haste uh, if you if you're actually going to be able to remain within those uh, in those budgets. And then the government has to respond to that challenge with this emissions reduction plan that I mentioned before is uh, has to be published by and tabled in Parliament by the end of this year. Um, and I am hoping because we've got to go to COP26 in Glasgow, uh, either in person or in, uh, virtually somehow, uh, at the beginning of November, that we want to be able to have something pretty substantive to say for that conference. And, and so I'm going to try and make sure that we've got as much of that plan over the line by the end of October. Have you made any commitment to the accepting that report yet uh, without seeing it or do you reserve the right to have a read and have a play? Well, the, I mean, there's a number of ways to answer that. So I, I, both the Prime Minister and I have said that we are inclined to follow the advice of the Commission because after all, who, who else are we going to ask? Uh, <laughs> but um, the the and I'll, I'll get into some of the reasons in, in a minute, but the um, the, the Commission's advice only goes so far. So they say, here are the emissions budgets, and they, they give us some numbers that are quite clear there. Uh, and I don't know the extent to which those numbers are likely to change in their final advice, but let's just say that what, what they gave us in their draft pretty much holds. Uh, you know that that advice is on in one way easy to accept because they've said these are the emissions budgets that you should follow you know and and we either follow that or we come up with an alternative but there are lots of areas where they have made suggestions but without mm. being crystal clear about you know like we recommend that you choose a fee bait for example over another form of subsidy or you know, tax incentive for electric vehicles. Mm. They've kind of given us areas of policy saying you need to, you know, switch your uh, light vehicle fleet to electrics um, as fast as humanly possible over the course of the next 15 years. Uh, but there are a number of different ways to skin the cat. And so we can accept that recommendation in principle. Yes, we want to swap out the light vehicle fleet, but then there will be quite a lot of work for the government to do to decide what are the precise policy levers that we want to use to create that outcome. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is probably where we will end up having most of the political debates with the opposition, right? Because we'll say, well, we think it should be done with a fee bait or whatever. They will come back and say, well, we think that you should do it with a you know fringe benefit tax uh, regime change. I'm not saying that either of those things are the positions of either of our parties, but that's an example of the of we kind of see a lot of debates kind of happening mm -hmm. over the course of this year. So the, the, the debate is not about the why or even so much the what, it's the how of how to get there. Yeah, I, I, well, there will be a lot of debates about the how. I think there might also be under the new leadership of the National Party, there might also be some debates about the how or the why, uh, sorry, the why um, and the what. Um, mm. it, you know, J Judith Collins was extremely sceptical about the uh, Zero Carbon Act when it was going through uh, and was muttering about, you know, potentially crossing the floor and voting against her own party uh, in order to vote against it. So I know that she's not a fan um, of, of where her party landed in supporting the overall structure. So we'll We'll just have to see, I guess, how, how things play out during the course of this year in terms of where she positions national now that she's leading it. Mm -hmm. uh, the second big thing on your agenda is Glasgow, COP26, which is uh, the, the uh, 
get-together, the 26th, I presume, get-together of mm -hmm. um, nations in response to the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, that's quite a big moment, isn't it? I mean, we've, you know, that's really the, the next big meeting following Paris, and there will be a reckoning for all countries, including us, and we're fronting up there with a pretty sad story to tell that we're nowhere near what we promised. Uh, I mean, we, we promised uh, a reduction uh, um, over the next 10 years that we, uh, on current policy, is going to blow into the weeds in a bad way. But we also, even on the, as I understand it, and you know, maths has uh, never been the strong suit for a journalist. But uh, as I understand it, even if we follow the advice of the Climate Change Commission, we're still well over what we originally promised in our NDC, our national, um, um, nationally determined contribution. I, I knew what that was. Yeah. You didn't have to tell me. <laughs> And we, have a, we have a lot of acronyms in this business. It's, oh, uh, we so do. Um, but anyway, you take my point that um, yes. on current policies, we're well behind. Even on this new commitment that we've got through the Climate Change Commission draft, uh, we're still well behind what we originally promised in 2016. Are you going to have to be embarrassed and offer a mea culpa at Glasgow? No. I, look, I, I think the... Um, so uh, there's a really important uh, thing that m the vast majority of people don't don't realize about this is when the previous national government came up with our 2030 commitment under Paris, um, they assumed that up to 85% of the effort would be made with offshore mitigation, you know, that we would be part of some kind of global carbon trading scheme. Uh, which meant that we didn't actually have to change the New Zealand domestic economy more than about 15%, uh, and that actually we would just make up um, the vast majority of our contribution to the Paris goals uh, by essentially paying other countries to do it for us. Now, um, what our government said in the, right at the very beginning uh, when we first formed in late 2017, early 2018, was that we wanted to flip that assumption on its head and that we wanted our effort to be domestic. Uh, and the extent to which we wanted to invest uh, in uh, the zero carbon economy was an investment we wanted to make in our own economy, not in somebody else's. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, even though the headline target hasn't changed yet, and it will change, um, the ambition has significantly increased because uh, what we said in the um, Zero Carbon Act is actually we want that effort to be domestic. And so all of a sudden, uh, that completely changes how you think about um, those targets and how we're going to be meeting it. Now, what has um, what the commissioner is saying is that, uh, you know, okay, that's um, well and good, but based on what we know about current technology, you probably can't get to that target with domestic action alone. You're still going to need some uh, co collaboration of some description with other countries to help to make up the difference in terms of what our contribution is to the overall planetary goal. Um, and, and like I said, that's based on current technology. And so the extent to which things emerge over the course of the coming 10 years will be able to contribute you know, more uh, than that. Um, but their assessment is that right now they don't think that we're going to be able to move the New Zealand economy fast enough to do all of that effort onshore. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the the gross number 
uh, is still too high to, to yes. rock up in, with any credibility uh, at, well, any credibility, that's a bit harsh. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be uh, amongst a bad bunch of other offenders, no doubt. Um, you know, how, how do these things work? Do you, do you, uh, you know, give us an insight into how the negotiations work with COP26. I assume that there's paperwork already flying now between your offices oh, yeah. and theirs. Yeah, I mean, what? So, the the COP conference itself is really um, a sort of a waypoint in a in a long process, and they have what they call intersessional meetings, which normally happen, um, you know, regionally and like. Hong Kong or Singapore for New Zealand uh, and those kind of feed up to a kind of a global mm-hmm. process. There's usually another kind of meeting with chief negotiators in Bonn, uh, which is um, where the uh, UNFCCC is, is headquartered. Um, and there's a convention center there that they use for those purposes. And so, you know, there's an enormous amount of work that kind of goes in before you have the kind of big global jamboree at the end of the year. Now, the global pandemic has, of course, quite dramatically uh, changed all of that. Uh, but all of that work is still ongoing. It's just going virtually and it's going a lot slower because it's going virtually. You know, it is it is quite difficult to have these kind of massive mm. multinational uh, negotiations and conversations occurring uh, at all hours of the day and night on, on Zoom calls. But they are, you know, they are ongoing. Um, and of course, we don't know yet whether or not the Glasgow COP will happen in person. We're hoping it does. Um, and the UK is certainly pushing extremely hard to make sure that every country uh, is able to be represented there. Mm-hmm. But, but we, don't, we don't quite know how that's going to play out yet. Uh, what, what are your expectations around uh, the big players in the room, the Russias, the China, the US, India, EU? <laughs> Well, this, there's been some huge movement over the course of the last 18 months, which has largely gone under the radar because of the pandemic and everyone's attention has been on on COVID. But actually, uh, something like 70% of the world's total emissions profile is now covered by countries that have committed to net zero by uh, either 2050 or 2060. So um, I think everybody in the G7 uh, has committed to, uh, no, I might be wrong about that, Um, uh, so that you've got uh, all of Europe, the UK, uh, the United States, uh, Japan, South Korea have all committed to net zero targets for 2050. Um, And China has committed to a net zero target for carbon dioxide only, um, but that is the vast majority of their emissions, uh, by 2060. Um, And all of that's kind of happened in the last, Mm. you know, sort of year or so. Um, The one that we're just waiting for kind of confirmation about where they land exactly is the United States under the Biden administration. Um, So it's it's really clear that um, President Biden has... Very, very high ambitions for what they are able to do both by 2030 and by 2050, and he's he's kind of said some stuff, but they haven't yet kind of made a formal declaration or, or put through any legislation to enact that. Do you think this extent of change is going to sneak up on us, and will be a little bit like 
I don't know, let's choose a, a comparison like cell phones. You know, within 10 years, suddenly we all had smartphones and you kind of look back and you say, well, how did that happen? I don't remember signing up mm. for this, but now it's an integrated part of my life and oh well. Um, or, or do you think actually there is some really disruptive change that's coming that will be upsetting, uh, will be unjust, will need intervention, um, mm. hand-holding, you know, on a scale of disruption in the next 10 years, what do you think we're facing around this? Not so much climate change itself, but um, I mean, you know, I'm talking about the policy and the way we behave mm. and the things we buy and sell and allowed to do and so on. I think, I think it, it'll be, it, it won't be as binary as that. I think it'll be a bit of both. And, and it'll probably depend on which sectors you're talking about. So I think that the change will happen. Uh, fastest and smoothest in those sectors where the industry themselves embrace the change, see it as an opportunity to, you know, put out new products and services, uh, and it all just kind of gets integrated into their everyday life. So, mm. an example of that actually is electric vehicles, where. Uh, you know, you've got countries like the United Kingdom who have said, um, we're actually going to make it illegal to buy an internal combustion engine vehicle after the year 2030. Um, and so that could be seen as quite a disruptive move, except that you've now got General Motors, Volvo, uh, you know, uh, I think BMW um, and uh, Hyundai and others who have said, you know what, uh, um, VW, we're not even going to make uh internal combustion engine vehicles after mm. kind of a range of dates from 2025, 2027, 2030, uh, and so on. And so, you know, it's just, you know, for a lot of people, it's when you go to the car yard, you'll buy a car. It's just that it'll be powered by a battery rather than um, by fossil fuels. Mm. Uh, and so I think that something like that will probably all happen really quite quickly and, and fairly smoothly, um, a lot smoothly than we think. Yeah. Um, there I may do be think that about my. Um, I'll just um, add an anecdote because I, you know, huge fan of e-bikes. But um, yeah, you know, my e-bike is awesome. Has changed my life, and mm. uh, you know, if I'd, it wasn't till I rode it to, that I realised how different an experience it is. And yes, that's a, re a really great example of like it's better for the planet. It's better for me. Yeah, it makes my day. And I just and as a Dutchman. I'm not paying anyone for parking or for petrol. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, it's, yep. it's good on in every uh, – there's got to be some changes like that that are coming, yes. right, that, that you just think, well, yeah. that was good. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And, I mean, it's interesting you should choose e-bikes, right, because we know that um, the only reason that more people aren't riding e-bikes in New Zealand is because we can't get them into the country fast enough. You know, the, the back order is enormous. People yeah. are hungry for them. Uh, and if you look at the example of London, which, you know, I was there during the 2000s when uh, Boris, uh, as mayor, put a huge amount of investment into um, both the what became nicknamed the, the Boris Bikes kind of shared cycle um, uh, uh, scheme, but mm -hmm. also the kind of the hard part was making sure that they had safe separated cycleways and in particular some cycle highways through core parts of the city. Um, and so they made it 
faster and more convenient to cycle than to drive yeah. uh, or even, in fact, to catch the tube. And now they're having to expand those uh, highways because they're congested with bicycles. And that, you know, like when I moved to London in the late 90s, you, you were a brave soul <laughs> if you went out on a bike. You, you really were. Uh, and, and there were lots of brave souls who did, um, including me at one point uh, when my living circumstances allowed for it. But it was kind of a freaky experience. And now it's just kind of how people get around. And mm. all of that has happened in, you know, only kind of 15 to 20 years. And, and I think that you are starting to see bits of that in Auckland, you know, with the, the crash. You know, we know that there's been a, Massive, so I think like a threefold or fivefold increase in in the use of bikes just in the last kind of five five years or so. Mm -hmm. As a result of that infrastructure getting laid down at the same time as the arrival of e-bikes on the scene, which make it you know considerably e easier as a proposition. So you've got all of that going on, and at the same time, I think that there will be some industries, and you know, um, without naming them, you and I can probably think of them who will want to hold on to the the kind of a status quo. Um, for as long as possible. And I think that the more that they kind of hold on to that status quo, the more they are likely to be uncomfortably disrupted, not necessarily by government regulation, although that is always a possibility, but actually because consumer demand and competing technologies and products arrive on the scene uh, that just make them outdated. And and that really is the area of greatest risk. I. I can say it because you're too shy or polite to, but we're talking about agriculture and the emerging threat to agriculture that's coming from multiple sides, from technology, from ethicists, uh, from plant-based foods. Um, geez, that's a whole nother show, and I promised you that this would be half an hour. So um, hmm. uh, that was lovely talking to you. Um, all the best for the next few months as you wrestle with your uh, – are you allowed to make a, a submission as the Green Party – this is the sort of weird world you occupy, but are you allowed to make a submission <laughs> to your report? I know. I know, I know well, I, well, I just want to be clear. That I think that there are members of the Green Party who will be making submissions, probably quite a, quite a few of them, um, and and you know that you can imagine what they might say. But no, as the Minister for Climate Change, I will not be making a submission. Although I might ask the Commission to clarify a few things. Uh, in their final report that they hint at in their draft report. But I think in order to be useful for the government to be able to make decisions could be um, messaged a little bit more clearly and bluntly. Well, on that bombshell, we shall leave it. James Shaw, uh, thanks for joining us on This Climate Business. An absolute pleasure, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.